Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. as we continue exploring our Tis the Season theme. Last week, we explored Saturnalia in ancient Rome, including some traditions that might have sounded familiar. This week will probably sound familiar in some ways, too, as we explore the Yule holiday. I'm sure you've heard of Yule before, Yule Tide, Yule Log. It's been woven into Christmas to such a degree that you couldn't be blamed for thinking Yule is just another aspect of the holiday. I'll admit, that's what I thought for a long time. But Yule is in fact its own holiday tied to Germanic peoples long before Christianity arrived in the region. The festival can be something of a puzzle. In some ways, our sources on the pre-Christian celebration are a bit limited. One thing we do know is that, like Saturnalia, Yule is connected to the winter solstice. In terms of how things change following the solstice, it's a bit different for this region than it is in Rome. The Scandinavian region we're looking at is much farther north and experiences a very different winter, which, depending on what part of the region you're in, also varies. In northern Scandinavia, you're very likely to experience snow during the winter. In southern areas, depending on which one, it can range from knee-deep snow to no snow at all. The northern Finnish areas up in the Arctic Circle rarely see the sunrise during midwinter, while the more southern areas only receive five or six hours a day. That said, this is also a time when the days begin to get longer in the northern hemisphere. I want to take a quick aside here to explain why this happens for any out there who don't know as well as any who find it interesting. The variations of our seasons take place because the Earth is tilted on its axis. We have four defining points for this journey around the sun. Autumnal equinox, winter solstice, vernal equinox, and summer solstice. The solstices represent the days when the earth is most tilted in relation to the sun, while the equinoxes represent when the earth is not tilted at all away from the sun. So the winter solstice, also the first day of winter, is when the North Pole is tilted the farthest away from the sun, making it the shortest day of the year while also signaling the coming return of longer days, which means the return of more light hours. And in a place like Scandinavia, where they can get little to no sunlight, it's easy to see why celebrations formed around this day. When we talk about Scandinavia, we're also talking about the Germanic peoples. Scandinavia is the northern extension of the Germanic ethnic group, which was initially mentioned by the Greco-Roman authors, with Julius Caesar distinguishing them from other groups, such as the Celtic Gauls, in 100-44 BCE. Not to be confused with Germany, though Germany certainly includes Germanic peoples. Germany itself is also only a part of the greater ethno-linguistic whole. So while I've started off with Scandinavia to help illustrate how the winter solstice is important in so many places, Yule is actually indigenous to the Germanic peoples as a whole. Connections have been made between the original Yule celebration and the Norse god Odin and a folklore motif, the Wild Hunt. So let's talk about those first. 
Odin was a prominent Norse god who appears in records throughout northern Europe. Sources indicate he was associated with death, royalty, wisdom, and a variety of others, much the same as numerous other pagan gods. His wife was the goddess Frigg, who we're going to talk about a little later along with their son Baldr. As has become well known in popular culture, he is also the father of the Mjolnir-wielding thunder god Thor, though Thor's mother is a different goddess named Joro. The Old Norse texts depict Odin as a man with only one eye and a long beard. Often depicted with him is his legendary spear, Gungnir. He also rode an eight-legged horse named Sleipnir, who will play a role in our discussion today as well. Odin was tied to the first two humans, Ask and Embla. They weren't created by Odin, and their actual origins vary among different traditions. Odin, along with two other gods, Lodur and Honer, found Ask and Embla as nothing more than lifeless husks. Out of pity, they granted the pair three gifts. According to the poem Voluspa, one of the poems in the Poetic Edda, these three gifts were granted. Lodur granted the gift of blood. Honer gave the gift of sense, and Odin gave them the gift of soul and spirit. Odin is also credited with providing knowledge of poetry to humans, as well as that of runes. And, believe it or not, he has over 170 known names among the Germanic people. That's a lot of names, all referring to some aspect of him, or religious practice relating to him, or some other thing of that nature. And it's from one of those names, Woden, that we derive the name for one of the days of the week, Wednesday. You can see why it's sometimes hard to nail down exactly who Odin was. With 170 names spread across numerous traditions, he's got a lot going on. Now let's move on to the Wild Hunt. This is another situation where there's some regional variances. In Germany, the leader of this hunt was usually Odin, though other figures could take his place. Sometimes it could be his wife, other times an undead noble named Count Hackelberg or Edinburg, cursed for his misdeeds in life. In Scandinavia, it seems Odin was the only leader. As you would expect of a hunt, dogs and horses were involved. Odin rode Sleipnir for these hunts. Many tales involve someone encountering the wild hunt and making a choice. Standing up to the hunters for some reason resulted in punishment. Joining the hunt resulted in a reward. Money and gold were nice. The leg of an animal or person? Eh, not so much. It would be cursed so that the person could not get rid of it no matter what they did. A magician or priest was required to ban it or, failing that, the person had to trick the wild hunt into taking it back. This was done by asking for, of all things, salt. For some reason, the wild hunt could not deliver salt and they were forced to take the leg back. Or, for simplicity, it seems you could stand in the middle of the road and be safe from all of that. In other versions, standing too close would get you swept into the party and dropped off miles away somewhere. Basically, you didn't want to be anywhere near this hunt. So what on earth does all of that have to do with Yule? Well... It does take place in the cold nights of winter. In some sources, it was originally a god, or goddess, visiting on a holiday bringing blessings. 
It seems most only refer to that first version, though. Odin leading the party through the sky has been credited with certain influences. Oh, did I not mention? Odin could fly on Sleipnir. An old guy with a white beard flying through the sky. Now where have I heard that before? Of course, Sinterklaas. What, were you expecting someone else? Sinterklaas is a legendary figure based on the real man St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas of Myra lived from 270 to 343 CE, and not too much is known about him. Sinterklaas is a stately man, serious in his depictions. He is shown with white hair and a long beard. He wears a red cape, sometimes over a white bishop's alb. That's a long white garment with long sleeves that goes all the way to the ankles. Sinterklaas also wears a red mitre, which is the hat bishops wear. Also, a ruby ring, and finally he holds a gold-colored crozier, that is, a shepherd's staff with a curled top. Traditionally, when he travels, he rides a white horse. With him, he carries a big red book with a record of which children have been good and which have been naughty. Of course, Sinterklaas has direct and proven influences on his character which don't involve Odin. St. Nicholas, for example. Still, there are some definite similarities between the two that are interesting, even if Odin wasn't a direct influence on Sinterklaas. When Odin rode Sleipnir through the sky during the Wild Hunt, in addition to the things mentioned before, he also had two black ravens named Hugin and Munin at his side. This pair listened at the chimneys of houses, which were basically just holes in the ceiling way back then, to find out whether humans were being good or bad. Isn't it interesting how different societies have developed the same concept of some kind of being keeping track of who has been bad and who has been good? Of course, Odin, by nature, is very different from the concept of an entity who brings gifts to all the good boys and girls. In fact, the sources only go so far as to say he was listening, but from what I can find, not any sort of action that was taken based on what he learned, at least not in relation to the winter solstice and Yule. Still, his presence is a part of Yule, as is the Wild Hunt. Let's talk about Odin's wife Frigg and their son Baldr. Frigg was the goddess of love. Her son Baldr is primarily known not for any exploits in life, but in the story of his death. Said to be the first in a chain of events that would lead to Ragnarok, which would ultimately end in the death of many gods, including Odin. Additionally, there would be natural disasters and a submersion of the entire world in water, after which time the world would return, new and fertile, with any surviving gods meeting and the world being repopulated by two humans who survived. As for Baldr, according to the Prose Edda, he and his mother both had a dream that foretold of his death. Naturally, since dreams were prophetic to them, this upset Baldr and caused him to become depressed, knowing that his death was coming. Frigg took action, traveling the earth to ensure that everything on it promised not to hurt him. All except one. Mistletoe. The reason has been explained as Frigg believing the mistletoe wasn't a threat. Not even important enough to talk to. This turned out to be a fatal mistake. All thanks to the mischievous god Loki. And this guy is quite a character. While some modern depictions have Loki as Thor's brother, that is not the case in the myth. At least one source refers to him as a stepbrother, 
but never do they share a mother or father. Loki was a shapeshifter, taking several known forms, including a fly and even an old woman, who's going to be important later. He also took the form of a mare and mated with a stallion called Zvadlfari. From this, Odin's steed Sleipnir was born. Yeah, that's Loki. And he was in good relations with the other gods for a time. A time that ended with Baldur's death. Back to that story. Loki heard of Frigg's decision to skip speaking with the mistletoe. So he decided to use the plant to make either a spear or an arrow. Meanwhile, the gods apparently decided it would be fun to throw stuff at Baldur. It didn't hurt him, so I guess why not? Loki brought his mistletoe weapon to this event. Of what came next, we have two versions. One suggests that Loki threw the weapon himself. Another, more tragic version, is that he gave the weapon to Baldur's blind brother, Hodr. As a result, Odin had a son named Vali with the goddess Rinder. Vali then grew to adulthood in just one day and killed Hodr. Later, a deal was made between Frigga and the goddess Hel. In this deal, Baldur would be released from the underworld if all things on earth grieved for him. All did, except one, a giantess who was usually thought to be Loki in disguise. And so Baldur had to remain in the underworld until after Ragnarok. There is, however, a lighter version of the myth. In it, Baldur still dies and Frigg still tries to get him back from hell. This time, though, she was successful and Baldur was resurrected. Overjoyed, Frigg decided to declare the once-overlooked mistletoe as a symbol of love. Not only that, but she would kiss anyone who walked under it. A way to say mistletoe would bring love, not death. Some other sources indicate that when Frigg mourned Baldur, her tears became the mistletoe berries. Remember, these myths can vary in many ways. Another aspect of Yule is a feast, which involved ritual sacrifices. Livestock were brought either to the gathering or just before. The animals were then slaughtered, with their blood taken for a ritual in which it was smeared on pedestals of idols, though not on the idols themselves. It was spread on indoor and outdoor walls as well, and apparently even some of the men who were present. When all of that was done, the meat was cooked to be served at the feast. There does appear to be a certain practical benefit for the slaughter. Remember I mentioned the winters were long and tough. Slaughtering some of the livestock meant they didn't have to be fed, and of course they became food for people. One particularly significant animal was the Yule boar, Sonor Galter. Reference is made to a tradition in which people placed their hands on the bristles of the boar, swore oaths, and then sacrificed it. These oaths, having been made on a boar, were said to be more forceful. The boar itself is connected to the goddess Freya, who rode a gold-bristled boar named Gulenbursti. Another tradition, which I'm sure you heard of, is the burning of the Yule log. The burning itself is a symbolic act. Remember that this 12-day festival began on the winter solstice. Burning the log represented the return of the sun, possibly even thought to encourage it to return. This log was intended to burn through the entire 12 days. 
So you can imagine, this had to have been a massive log. It might have been an entire tree, which then had to be carefully maintained and fed into the fire. Not only that, it was also bad luck if the fire went out, and this thing wasn't cut up either. It was one continuous log. Imagine burning an entire tree or log big enough to last 12 nights in your home without chopping it into smaller pieces or setting your house on fire. For some, significance was read into how the log burned. Things like noting how many sparks fly off the log. They would use this to try and determine what good fortunes may await in the new year. Maybe something like how many calves or piglets would be born, if one was a farmer. Sometimes the log would also be decorated with holly or ivy and anointed with wine or salt before being burned. The symbolism and traditions didn't end at the burning. In some traditions, a piece would be kept and placed under the bed to protect the house from dangers such as lightning, or, ironically enough, fire. In houses made of wood, with furniture made of wood, that was a pretty important thing. That log piece may also have been kept and used to start the fire next year. The ashes were considered valuable as well, in addition to offering protection. In some areas, they were thought to have special medicinal properties. Another tradition, which traditionally took place on the twelfth night, is called wassailing. There are two versions of wassailing. One is called orchard visiting, which we aren't going to focus on today. We're going to look at the house visiting version. People planning to participate would gather and fill a bowl, appropriately called the wassail bowl, with a hot mold cider. They would then venture out and visit people door to door. At each stop, they would sing for whoever answered the door and offer a drink from the bowl. In exchange, the resident would give them gifts. In the Middle Ages, one particular song, Here We Come Awasailing, has the singer specifically state that they are not beggars, but friendly neighbors. The person at the home would offer them gifts and return the song with one offering them blessings. Love, joy, God bless you, and Happy New Year were things that might be included. All sung. So that about covers pre-Christian Yule. It's not the easiest to research the traditions of that time period, but we covered a lot of ground. And I'm sure you've noticed some familiar traditions. Alright, I mentioned that I was going to try and include some other traditions alongside the primary ones I've chosen for the month. Today I want to take a look at Yalda Night. This is an Iranian winter solstice festival. By description, it is celebrated on the longest and darkest night of the year, which, based on the Iranian civil calendar, is the night between the last day of the ninth month, Azar, and the first day of the tenth month, Day. In the Gregorian calendar, this is the same December 20th, 21st, 22nd, from which we identified the day of the solstice, just on a different calendar. This is a time when family and friends gather, eating and drinking. Some recite poetry. Common fruits are fruits, nuts, pomegranates, and watermelons. The red color in the latter is of particular significance. It represents the colors of dawn and even the glow of life. So even though they don't experience the same darkness we just saw with the Germanic people, there's still an emphasis on light and on life. 
Early references to winter solstice festivals in the area are known, including some from the Middle Persian texts, which date back to the Sasanian Empire that existed from 224 to 651 CE. From the 10th century CE, Iranian scholar Abu Rayhan al-Biruni notes several celebrations. Maidyarin Gahanbar is one such celebration, part of Zoroastrian tradition. While it takes place in the beginning of January, originally it was a winter solstice festival. The Zoroastrian traditions of the area weren't actually intended to be any sort of celebration. Rather, they were focused on customs that protected people from evil during the longest night. It was thought that the evil forces of Ahriman were at their strongest during this time. People were advised to stay awake, come together among family and friends, and share fruits, all to pass this long, dangerous night. It was the next day which was a cause for celebration. So, now that religious significance is gone, the traditions still remain, into those early festivals and on into Yalda. When people gather together, you actually see a bit of symbolism in the number of dishes provided. Not in all areas, but definitely in some. It is customary that, when eating on this night, there be 40 varieties of food. And that's not the first place we see the number 40. Yalda is the night leading into the first 40-day period of winter. From this comes the name Chele, meaning 40th. Three such periods exist. One is in summer, the other two are in winter. While the cause is unknown, eventually the Syriac language word Yalda and the Persian word Chele came to mean the same thing and refer to the same day. Isn't language a curious thing? So we have the 40 varieties of food as part of the feast, at least in some places. And we can see that 40 is a significant number. I already mentioned the significance of watermelon and pomegranate. There is more detail in that light-hearted superstition. And you notice, while the religious significance of the day faded, in its place we now find these light-hearted superstitions. In this case, about food. In the terms of the watermelon, the belief is that consuming it on this night will ensure health and well-being during the summer months protection against things like heat or disease. Elsewhere, there is a belief that eating green olives, carrots, pears, and pomegranates will protect you from insect bites. And garlic, that protects you too, from joint pain. Did you think I was going to say vampires? The staying up all night tradition is still around. Eating, drinking, talking, reading poetry, even dancing. An Islamic ban on alcohol does prevent the purchase of wine and other beverages, but people are not deterred. Many brew their own homemade alcoholic beverages. Another food-related tradition is the giving of dried fruits and nuts to family and friends. They're wrapped in tulle and tied with a ribbon like a party favor. You know, maybe I should have talked about this last month. Food is everywhere. One tradition that fell away when electricity came around was lighting the house and yard both with candles. These days, it's more or less gone. Flipping a light switch is a lot easier than lighting a whole lot of candles. But you gotta know, it was probably quite a sight back then. And that's Yalda. 
There's a few more details and regional variations. I may work more about it into another theme in the future. And that's Yule and Yalda, from Odin to Sinterklaas, two winter solstice festivals. I hope you enjoyed seeing the two distinctly different winter solstice festivals together like this. Though, they're not entirely different now, are they? Next week, we're going to look at Hanukkah, probably our best-known holiday so far. Until then, take care.